1: So, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz, Commissioning
2: Arts Editor. And I'm Lila, the FT's Community Editor.
1: Coming up on today's show, I'm heading back to Soho in central London, this time to meet the two creators of the Netflix sensation Black Mirror, Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones. I'm hoping to find out what goes into creating a show like Black Mirror, what they think about our relationship to technology now, and whether Charlie Brooker is as grumpy in real life as his public persona suggests.
2: We'll also be talking to the FT's fashion editor, Jo Ellison, who just got back from Paris where she met Rihanna and wrote a feature on her fashion line for FT Weekend. Jo is going to bring us behind the interview and tell Grizz what it's like for a journalist to get 20 minutes with pop royalty. But before any of that, the most
1: important part of the show... I'm so excited to have a new co-host for the podcast, Lila Raptopoulos.
2: Hi, Grizz. I am a long-time listener to everything else, so I'm thrilled to be here. It must be slightly surreal, actually, to suddenly be in the hot seat. It is. It feels like, you know, long-time listener, (laughs) first-time (laughs) co-host. So um, we worked
1: together for a bit when you were in the FT's London office but you're now speaking to me
2: from New York. I am. Yeah. So I'm the community editor at the FT. Um, and I also write features occasionally for FT Weekend, Culture Features. I was in the London office for about three years and I just moved back to New York. Um, and I think that's part of what will make this fun. London and New York are these like powerful cultural centers, but they're often really different in sort of funny ways. Um which I have been watching (laughs) from afar now. And uh, I'm excited to see what kind of conversations happen because of it. It should be a pretty cool conversation.
1: Mm, No, I'm really excited about it. I can't wait.
2: So, uh, this week you spoke to Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones, Mm -hmm. who are the co-showrunners of the TV show Black Mirror. Uh, which aired in the UK, I remember, on Channel 4, Mm -hmm. and then it got picked up by Netflix. And uh, I love Black Mirror, so I'm very excited to listen to this. Mm -hmm. Um, But for people who haven't watched it before, maybe you can talk a little bit about what the deal is.
1: Yeah, so Black Mirror is a TV show that I guess is exploring our relationship to technology, really, and it's an anthology show, which means each episode is like a sort of little self contained story and self contained world that unpacks a particular idea. They're almost like little thought experiments like, you know, what would it be like to live in a world where we rated each other on a scale of one to five during all of our interactions? Or. Scary. Yeah. not not great maybe stressful <laughs> spoiler <Yeah>. alert um <laughs> or, or in san junipero which is an episode which actually won two emmys for them they explore the idea of like what would it be like if we could live forever in our memories so in a sort of nostalgic simulated reality as this suggests it's sometimes dark but actually not always and that's something that um we talked about but definitely, I would say the best episodes of Black Mirror like really, really do stay with you. Mm.
2: So when you say they're little nuggets, I was surprised when I first started watching that there is no bigger narrative arc to the show. Mm. Every episode, the cast is different, the locations are different, um, the topic is different. And the only thing that seems to tie it together is that each one explores in its own way, like what could happen if we didn't keep our moral guard up in the way we relate to technology.
1: Yeah, it's like a, it's very much like a what if, isn't it?
2: Yeah. And so many of the themes hit this very uncomfortable place where it reminds us a little bit too much of real life. Um, I also have thought a lot about the name Black Mirror <laughs> mm. and how creepy it is. I read an interview with Charlie Brooker where he said that the Black Mirror is the screen of your smartphone when it's off and that all you can see in it is just a reflection of yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: And yikes. Yeah. That's <laughs> how so I feel about that. <laughs> and so Black Mirror, it feels like it's become like an adjective, right? I mm. find myself saying when some technological advancement freaks me out. Oh, my God, that's so Black Mirror.
1: Yes, and that's something that I spoke to Charlie and Annabelle about. You know, that must be so weird for them, like, to to have created this thing which we now reference when we're talking about real life. I mean, that in itself is Black Mirror. I don't know. You can go down a rabbit hole of, of Black Mirrors. Right. It's funny as well how since it started in 2011, there have been these instances of kind of life imitating art so you know real life starting to feel like an episode of black mirror actually amazingly the first ever episode which was called the national anthem which was about this fictional prime minister who was forced to have sex with a pig four years later irl it was alleged in a biography of the uk prime minister at the time david cameron that he had actually done something similar with a dead pig when he was at university it was one of those (laughs) just surreal moments
2: it's very upsetting yeah (laughs) deeply So, Grizz, I'm really curious to hear what interested you about speaking with Charlie and Annabelle. Uh, I remember that Charlie Brooker, as a public figure, was really well-known in Britain. Everyone kind of knew him as this sardonic and kind of cynical, curmudgeonly guy. Mm. But in the U.S., I, people, people seem to know Black Mirror very well, but not really know him. Mm. So... Um, Can you kind of set the scene for what you were expecting and what you found?
1: Yeah, I remember reading Charlie Brooker's um, newspaper columns, like TV reviews mostly, sort of several years before he created Black Mirror. And he definitely has this kind of satirical, very sharp kind of critical eye, which comes out whether he's writing about a new TV show or some kind of new version of reality TV that he thinks is rubbish or, you know, when he's creating this near-future dystopia. Like, you can see Charlie Brooker's interests and, I guess, fears about contemporary life in both of those things.
2: That's so interesting. It sounds like Even his television shows in itself are criticisms.
1: Yeah, I think that's the thing that's clever about Black Mirror in that way, that it's kind of a show that is made by a critic in the real sense of that.
2: And what about Annabelle Jones? What's um, her relationship to Charlie Brooker and the show? So she and Charlie Brooker are
1: co-showrunners and they've actually been collaborators for a long time, predating Black Mirror.
2: So, yeah, she's a very cool, very experienced TV producer. Well, I'm really excited to hear this interview. What did you talk about first? So the first thing I
1: asked them was about the process of kind of dreaming up the ideas for Black Mirror's storylines and how that usually plays out.
0: What tends to happen is there'll be a conversation. It's it's always a... It's never... We don't sit down and go, right, what's in the technology pages or what's on the front page of the newspaper today. I'll say something like, uh, you know, I was thinking about the nature of video games in which you fight and how actually there's a sort of strange homoerotic sort of nature to them and there's like two guys wrestling on a carpet and is there something funny about that and something we can explore in there and then Mm. that sort of expands into an an episode idea. It's quite often that, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it's sort of just observational and it's chat and it's sort of the things you say to friends to while away the minutes and by, by having all of these little details and observations you sort of very amateurishly stumble upon an idea where everything gets compounded and then Charlie often will find the engine and find the story that bring together all these themes and then it's suddenly a sort of a eureka moment.
0: Yeah, there's always a point where during a conversation, I've suddenly gone, "Oh, oh, oh, I know! Ooh, ah, here's what makes it a Black Mirror story <laughs> is because if that happened and that happened, then this would happen, and that would be awful <laughs> for the people involved. It would be awful, or it'd be funny, or a bit like whatever." Mm, and so that sounds it, painful. It, yeah, <laughs> are the you way in I pain? Said,
3: awful. Yeah.
0: Well, that's the passion.
3: Oh, wow. But there's there's pain in in black mirror
1: right? Yeah,
0: it's quite often uncomfortable but, I guess.
3: Yeah, but I hope the discomfort comes from the fact that we're tapping into something that people are already feeling. You know, so even when we do episodes that are set in the future they're all based upon concerns or you know uh, worries that people are having now and we've just extrapolated them. Mm. So
1: because these ideas are kind of circling around in your heads just naturally would you say that they come easily or are there some that you sort of really wrestle with and that, that are not like that?
0: Some stories are really quite led by the emotions. So something like San Junipero, which mm. was an episode we did which was sort of set in an idealised 1987 California and it's actually, there's a sort of natural progression to the story once you've sort of thought up the initial concept. Then there's other things which require more meticulous plotting and those, obviously you want authentic emotions in there but also there's a big element of like solving puzzles
3: Mm. but a lot of the time it's about finding the single human story because I think that's ultimately what we're interested in. It's not about the technology, it is about how individuals cope with the tools, the new tools that they have that can give them so much power and how we try and act responsibly with those. You know, we're all learning a new language. One of the key relationships that we seem to be talking about at the moment is technology. Is it taking over? us? Are we spending too much time on our phones? You know, are we losing all of our basic common sense and human reactions you know, would we rather tell our Uber driver um, that we want to go to a different destination by processing it through an app rather than just leaning across and shouting, would you mind taking me to shouting? <laughs> because the radio's on and it's very loud and they can't oh. hear you. Oh, you Not painted, from a diva painted point a of real view. real picture there. Not from a diva <laughs> point of view. But you know what I mean, that's sort of all of the we're, we're changing the way we interact with each other mm. and with our phones and, and that seems to be such the, a sort of uh, the contemporary Worry, But
1: what I'm interested in as well is that the culture has caught up with Black Mirror in that sense. I don't know if in 2011 we were as wary and as critical of the big tech companies as we are now. No.
0: Hmm. Well, certainly one of the inspirations, I guess, for the tone of the show was my initial reaction to seeing iPhone adverts on TV, which certainly at the time were full of extreme sort of aspirational imagery and everyone looking very cool and doing cool shit with their phone, basically. And it all looked brilliant, and it was all wonderfully shot. It was probably quite annoying as well. I think there's one where there's a bloke playing a flipping ukulele on the top of a (laughs) Brooklyn apartment while the sun sets. It's all
1: a bit smug.
0: It's very smug. But but anything like that that was just presenting a fairly bland upside to anything feels like a strange kind of propaganda (laughs) that makes me immediately... Uneasy.
1: But I think you were uneasy before a lot of people were uneasy in the writing that you were doing. Right. At least it, it seemed like that. It's probably partly because I tend to worry about
0: everything. I also slightly felt probably like I've always been quite geeky. And at that point in time, it felt like everyone was into computers, the internet, phone, like smartphone. Everything was like going that way. Suddenly everyone had an opinion on it and everyone was interested in it and engaged with it in a way that you sort of think... I guess maybe I'd been exposed to all that stuff for long enough that I was not seduced by the novelty of it and was more slightly worried by... I was just unsettled by anything that just seemed, to me, insanely optimistic. Though all those early adverts and things like that reminded me of... If you've seen the film Soylent Green, which is a very good dystopian sci-fi film from the 70s. New York City in the year 2022...
3: Nothing runs anymore.
0: There's a bit in it where they there's an old guy goes to get euthanized. And just before they kill him, they show him a sort of film of like beautiful nature and deers gambling through forests and babbling brooks and stuff. And he chose to die rather than reveal the
3: secret of soylent green.
0: And then they kill him. And all those sort of early Apple ads reminded me of that film that they showed. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, that's and, what they had in mind.
0: Yeah, <laughs> probably. That's we what know they, that's they where went, we're ending. They go, get us that. Yeah. Get us the thing, like the, <laughs> like the film that they show the, the guy before they kill him. Um, but when the, I don't think the show would have... The show seems to have caught on. And I don't think it would have done if people hadn't had that at the back of their minds. A slight uneasiness. And I guess now we're in a point where it seems there is a lot of attention and focus on... The potential downsides of technology, probably to a degree that's overdone. Do you think, in many ways,
1: in in real life, well, I mean, so in uh, what sense do you think this over, is exaggerated? The, the kind of no, addictive I think nature that of it.
0: It's, it's probably a little too easy to get too despairing, and certainly, like we often present worst case scenarios for a dramatic reason. But usually, it's not the technology isn't the bad guy in our episodes. It's usually a human being messing something up. I think that I, I have to, in a contrary way. When it seems like people aren't worrying about something, I start to worry. When it seems that everybody's worrying about it, I can kind of think, oh, I can take the day off. You then. can relax. <laughs> I can relax a bit. And so I sort of think at the moment, with what is happening, it seems, globally in all sorts of ways, it feels like we're going through a transitional period. It's a bit like we're dealing with the repercussions of the invention of the printing press. Or something like that. It was just a new it was a whole new way of looking at the world that has all kinds of ramifications for us as a species. But ultimately, was positive. It was, a, you know, progress. So uh, I can muster some. I can pretend to be optimistic for a bit, and every so I say that, <laughs> and then like tomorrow I'll look at something on the news and I'll go, Oh my god! And it'll all go yeah. spiraling down the mental yeah. plug hole. When
3: everyone's become complacent, you can start worrying again. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's so. I'm delighted that everyone's worried.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Annabelle, uh, would you describe yourself as a warrior? No. I I am the optimist in our relationship I suppose in um, I think most I think that we as humans have a, a selfish instinct to survive and we will do you know no matter how far we go in in extreme behavior we will there will be that check that prevents us from killing ourselves outright
0: um, I agree that we have a selfish will to survive the problem is that like mm-hmm. And if it came down to it, we'd all kill each other. Every, like, you'd kill your next-door neighbour to save your own children.
3: But that wasn't the question.
0: No, but I'm just... I'm just you're, you're just trying concerned. to make it brutal.
3: <laughs> OK, great. Uh, no, I, you know, but I... you feel less
1: anxious than Charlie does. I am less anxious. Things, I,
3: really? I think we're probably living in the most peaceful time the world has ever known. Mm. Yes, I am the optimist.
1: It's one of the problems, though, that all of that like, positive change doesn't make for as good television as kind of
3: dystopia and apocalypse Um, I think you know the job of an anthology show is to present a range of genres and a range of tones and also maybe a range of ending and if all of the films were nihilistic and bleak it would become very not just boring but it would be predictable Mm -hmm. and one of the joys of the anthology is starting to watch an episode and have no idea where it's going to take you and I love that fact that it is demanding of a viewer that it is a You know, not that we're trying to shock or, or, you know have twists that aren't earned but you do in a way have to engage with each film because you have no idea what it is and where it's going to go neither do we most of the time but anyway (laughs) that's an aside Um, so it is interesting that when we have done a sort of more triumphant or happy ending that those have been massively celebrated Mm. and appreciated and I don't think we've lost uh, any it's not that those ideas don't have uh, it's not that those films don't have clever ideas or challenging ideas within them San Junipero which is probably our most uh, celebrated is about creating an eternal heaven, an eternal digital heaven. But we don't say this is the happy ever after. We say this is a happy happy ever after now for those two characters. But we also recognise that what does eternal, you know, what does an eternal future mean? You know, there's no comfort there. So I think we can have the happy ending and still have the, uh, the Black Mirror sensibility.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's tricky to, like, one of the reasons why you have a lot of dystopian fiction around at the moment is partly that there's obviously an appetite for it and that probably is being fueled by a general anxiety, probably. Um, in the same way that, you know, with the Cold War, you had lots of sort of spy thrillers and, you know, strange love and things like that. So it's a tricky um, illustrating, for instance, technology's potential for positive change is not necessarily intrinsically dramatic Having said that, something like San Junipero, which I think does present a sort of literally a utopia, a technological utopia, is a story, hopefully, that, as Annabelle was saying, is set. that's the setting, but the story attached to it is quite complicated and isn't all just yeah. people smiling and eating sandwiches.
1: But going back, so you mentioned San Junipero, and actually the first episode of the new series, which I've just watched, mm-hmm. um, reminded me of that because it taps into this idea of kind of VR as a kind of portal to... Well, in this case, sort of forbidden desire.
3: The app says that we need to do it within the hour. It's peak fertility. This age so much. I don't know if I can.
1: I'll oh. Could you talk a bit about that and the sort of potential for tech to take people a- yes. out of their life as they know it?
0: Yeah, um, it's an interesting one because it throws up in that episode. It throws all sorts of dilemmas get thrown up. It's kind of a porn analogy, actually. Mm the episode is kind of an analogy for porn, but obviously it gets a little more complicated than that. Um, It just struck us as an interesting area. It wasn't something we'd said actually for quite a while. We thought there's got to be something in... Apparently, pornography is quite big on the internet. Apparently.
2: I don't know. I've, <laughs> I've never seen that, it. Yeah. I've never
0: heard of it. I don't even know what it is. I've relied on Annabelle's descriptions of it, and she's only going... She's never seen it either. She's going on... No, 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 that...
3: I'm addicted. How oh, are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. uh, Every minute. Oh, um, right.
0: So, so, so it was something an area that we'd, we'd, we'd never explored, um, and uh, and then we had a sort of story idea that made
3: sense to explore there. Yes. Can we talk about the porn a bit more? Not that from a personal point of view, Um, but um, uh, it's, you know, it's interesting. Our relationship as technology becomes more sophisticated and uh, porn will become more sophisticated and more immersive and more tailored and more bespoke. And, and you know, it's interesting that we may be sort of getting to a place where we can have very highly personalised porn. And so our relationship with the porn will, will ultimately change from something that may once have been a healthy distraction to something that may actually be more threatening and more of a challenge and may actually become more of an affair. And so it's when... Technology allows us more wish fulfillment and fantasy fulfillment, how we manage our relationship with the real world
1: mm. yeah it's, it's the worrying thing is how it impacts on our real life relationships, which obviously porn already, we know that porn affects for example teenagers and yes. what they expect mm.
3: sex to be like. No, exactly. That was one of the things that we were discussing at the time that are uh, not that Charlie's ever experienced porn, I just want to make that point I again. Don't what, I don't know what it <laughs> is. Again, we need to explain to him. But uh, you know, people, <laughs> porn is now so accessible and as you say it's massively changing young people's perception of what sexual relationships should be. So the whole area is really mm. fascinating and that was one of the themes, the observations we wanted to just sort of bring into the film.
0: Yeah, as part of my desperate attempt to find out what pornography is, mm-hmm. um, I listened to, like, John Ronson did a really good podcast about...
1: Yeah, he was just our most recent interview okay. oh, yeah. and he's, oh, So he's been talking yeah. a
0: lot about Pornhub and stuff, which obviously I did. I was like, what's that? Um, but, um, there was, <laughs> How long are struck... you going
3: to keep doing this one, <laughs> <There were laughs> Have many, <we> done it?
0: <laughs> there were many anecdotes in there that were fascinating. One thing I found, like, really stayed with me was his description of he goes to w- he goes to watch like an orgy and the guys at the orgy were watching pornography on their phones in order to stay aroused and it was that's, the, that's like the, that was mm. the bleakest image I could imagine was the even in the porn, you're having to watch more porn yeah. so that you are excited by the fact that you're, this is happening to you.
1: It's quite a kind of black mirror scenario, Yeah, because yeah.
0: so you're sort of trapped in a... That is a hall of mirrors. You're trapped in there. A yes. hall of mirrors where all sorts of things are being reflected.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so... That thing about something being a bit Black Mirror, I mean, people say that. I'm, I'm sure you guys get that as well. I wonder, when the show does predict real life or seem to, how do you feel? I mean, is it, do you feel smug? Do you feel
0: horrified? Probably... Both. I mean, it's weird. In that, it's sometimes it's like when when the more people say, "Oh, that's a bit Black Mirror about the news or something," the more it's good free publicity, but also terrifying <laughs> on a, as a human animal, um, <laughs> trapped on a ball along with everyone else. Um, it's uh, yeah. So it's that's quite odd. The weirdest one for me was our very first episode, which was the national anthem. The storyline of that seemed to. Tack quite closely to the rumours about David Cameron that came out a few years ago. So we're talking about the pig. The pig. I was. I, I didn't know how delicate I could be. <laughs> That's that what was, he said to the pig. What was it well, <laughs> well he did. He probably didn't because <laughs> it was all in that book, wasn't it? <laughs> but what's the name in Thingamibob? Bob? Yeah. Um. And when I saw that, rumour breaking, I it, that seemed so freakishly close to the storyline of something I'd written that I did momentarily doubt reality.
1: (laughs) I mean, I guess you wonder, like, did I write this into being?
4: Well, I mean, that's quite a creepy
1: idea.
0: (laughs) I kind of thought, am I dreaming? And like, and is everything a simulation? In which case that would make me the centre of the universe, which is not (laughs) a healthy thought for anyone (laughs) to have. So I quite quickly dismissed that idea and thought, no, it's just a big coincidence, but it was quite odd.
3: I do, I, looking back, you sort of think how funny when that Black Mirror episode went out, David Cameron must have been thinking, how
0: do they know? <laughs> or he'd have been thinking, this is the sexiest thing I've ever seen.
3: <laughs> Why is there so much porn on TV?
0: But thank God there is. <laughs>
1: if it's going to be like this...
3: <laughs> it's not just me who likes pigs.
0: Which he
1: doesn't. No, no, we, we have no yeah, reason to believe that. Yeah. <laughs> um... So when the the move from Channel Four to Netflix happened, um, some British people were saying, you know, is uh, Black Mirror going to become Americanized? Mm-hmm. And sort of worrying about that. And one of the episodes on, in the new series that I just saw was with Andrew Scott. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the action flips between the south of England mm. and these kind of slightly dopey English police. <laughs> Maybe that's unfair. they're a little hard on They seem like they're always sort of one step behind the other action that's going on, which is in uh, kind of this big tech company mm-hmm. on the west coast of America. Um and i wondered were you having fun with a kind of culture clash there <laughs> a kind of english american thing
0: i'm not trying to give anything away but like there is a bit of i was at, there's there's certainly a bit of fun in the in some of the language i think but really i think that overall we are mindful that black mirror is still a sort of in our heads it's still a very british show and even when we do we sometimes do stories that are set in the us or in an unnamed country we always tend to then counter that by doing one set in a very recognizable britain
1: and is that important to you both that this is it feels british when it was first announced that
0: we were going to netflix like some people had sort of said oh i hope it doesn't go all american and the first episode i wrote was san junipero partly to sort of go oh fuck you okay opening (laughs) scene california (laughs) 1987 it's like literally a californian surf town, um, because I thought, what could be more American than that? Let's lean into it. Um, But the important point is that the story worked sort of no matter
3: where you Mm, set it. It's quite a
0: universal story.
3: The story is very kitchen sink drama, love triangle. We don't do big, what people might think of big American conspiracy or corporate conspiracies or the evil corporation taking over. And, you know, we don't tend to do those big stories because... I don't really have much investment in them. I don't really doesn't have much resonance for me, so it doesn't really interest me, mm. so it's the people that interest, you. yeah, yeah, okay, So
1: because the show's so famous for sort of supposedly predicting things that happen, I'm interested to know what has caught you off guard in terms of tech developments.
0: um, the thing that most like made me go who recently was. Um, there's a website called This Person Does Not Exist, which is like photorealistic looking images of people who don't exist that are generated by an, an AI. And why? Why? It's literally, it was put together by somebody to demonstrate how close we are to not being able to trust anything we look at. Right. So that in conjunction with the deep fakes stuff that mm. I think last year a lot of people had seen. And certainly that plays into one of the episodes in our run this time around we were looking
1: at so the um, idea that you think you're watching a video and it's not real
0: that you map somebody else's face onto a person mm. yes for instance it, it, the deepfake stuff it was matching other people's face uh onto a person and then but they and and it was photorealistic or you know, almost photorealistic and some people have done things that are fairly harmless like they have put like nicholas cage and, and put like him in Goldfinger and him in Friends and him in, you know, like Jaws or what have you. Um, and other things are more disturbing where it's like taking uh, celebrities and putting them in porn. And it's getting to the point where it looks like this has actually been filmed. This is real. And this website, This Person Does Not Exist, generates these images of people. And it's sort of haunting because they're both at the same time very, very convincing and also there's something off because it can't quite, it's based on feeding it millions of images from the internet and it can't quite distinguish between things like somebody's sunglasses on their head and their hair, for instance. So you sometimes get these people who are on it who they've got this sort of weird hair that's also part sort of glass <laughs> metal and it's like there's something nightmarish about it. I mean, I looked at it and I was like, that is very Black Mirror. And that was the most recent thing that I was Shocked by how sophisticated Mm. that was at this point in time and made me think, uh uh-oh, the trapdoor's about to open. And if we think disinformation is a problem now, nothing compared to what's coming.
1: Final question. Has success changed your kind of persona of being grumpy, do you think? Like, has it changed your outlook?
3: It hasn't changed him. He's still grumpy. Uh, am I? No. No.
0: What's tricky is that, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of that is based in reality, but it's also the persona. Um, I probably was also always just worried and anxious about things. So I think I'm probably about the same. Also, we never really go outside, so we don't really know. Because we're busy, like genuinely, we're, we're sort of just busy working on the shows. And we don't like swan around in. Like we sometimes get to do occasionally, like we go to like award ceremonies and things like that. And then you sort of go, oh, yeah, this is. But I, you okay. sort of feel like you've been invited by mistake.
3: And also, when we do, so if we do go to an award show, which, you know, maybe LA to, to the Emmys, where we know miraculously we've won in the last two years, um, we don't know anyone because we don't know the industry. So we walk around feeling like total outsiders, which we are, and so you sort of just arrive and then go, oh my God, we've won, and then you go home and then you start working on the show again.
0: And it seems I'll always find something to be miserable about. So like the first time we went to the Emmys, I won two Emmys, right? I had an Emmy in each hand, right? And you have to carry it around. For the rest of the evening, that's what they don't tell you, right? So they're quite heavy. They're quite heavy. So that was immediately a bit annoying. It's like, I'm just saying it's quite, <laughs> this is a first-world problem. This so is like, I've quite, just one is quite heavy. heavy, and then I had two, right? And I'm sort of walking out of there, and there's people who shout like, "I love your show! What is it?" You like things like that because they just see you with an award. And then I walk in. There's this governor's ball afterwards. I'm like, it's been like three hours. I'm dying for a drink. I walk in. There's somebody with a tray of champagne glasses, and they're like, "Champagne!" And I'm like, I can't pick it up because I've got an Emmy in each hand,
3: and I was. <laughs>
2: Actually, oh annoyed.
3: Uh, <laughs> you know, you sound. What a, what a, you, what you,
0: a prat. But I was, it was on a human level, I was like, God, this is annoying. <laughs> I mean, I was also then aware of the ridiculousness <laughs> of that thought.
1: So, Annabelle, you like you like working with Charlie. Is that right? Did I say that? <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> Did I say that? <laughs> like, your face said you. everything. Endure. <laughs>
3: uh, don't look at me <laughs> like
0: that. <laughs> don't you, I don't think you've ever said anything nice to me. Oh, thanks. See, did you notice I was fishing?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, on that note, Mm.
2: thanks, guys, very much for doing the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so having heard that conversation, I have a lot of questions for you. Um, The first being, I kept thinking... These are two people who run a show that has had a pretty seminal effect on our discussions about technology. And I'm curious about what point in the interview you thought, okay, like, yes, that's at the heart of how this show successfully affected our culture.
1: I guess something that interested me was when I said to Charlie, you've been writing about the kind of latent fear that we have about our relationship to technology or like what technology is doing to our brain. And I said to him, like, you've been you were writing about that before I felt like many people were writing about it and talking about it. Yeah. And he said because he'd been a very early adopter and he'd grown up with video games, that like he saw the kind of creepiness of some of this stuff when we all still thought it was really cool. Mm. Um and I guess the interesting thing is like, I just don't think we were talking about that in twenty eleven. No.
2: It angled it as threatening before we saw the threat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I felt I feel like is sort of a public service. Yeah. Uh, I really liked your point about how this season is coming out in an era of regulation and fear where previous seasons hadn't. And Charlie said something like, when it seems like everybody's worried, I think I can relax and take the day off, Yeah, Um, (laughs) which is, I guess, now. And yet he's coming out with this new season, and this new season is exploring things like what could happen in the porn industry or Mm -hmm. what could happen with other things that we probably haven't thought enough about. And so I really kind of hope he doesn't take a day off (laughs) and chill out because, uh, you know, I think... I think Black Mirror in some ways pushed us faster into what's kind of like a healthy existential crisis.
1: Yeah, and I guess I don't think he will, you know, take a day off, like metaphorically, <laughs> because, you know, like he said at the end there, he there are things that he's still worried about. There's yeah, technology is moving in directions that are still quite scary. And actually, you know, what he was just hinting at at the end was kind of the political ramifications of false information and we kind of know what that can lead to you know I kind of hope that's an avenue that Black Mirror will will
2: go into more. So recently our colleague Joe Ellison traveled to Paris, met Rihanna and wrote a piece that was published in FT Weekend. So, Grizz, I am a giant Rihanna fan and I'm fascinated by what fame does to a person. And so I can't wait to hear your conversation with Joe about Rihanna and her new fashion line.
1: Yeah. So, Joe is the FT's fashion editor, but writes much more broadly. She has a column that's published every week about all sorts of kind of things in pop culture. And as a non-fashion person, I, I find that she really writes about fashion in a way that's like very interesting, very relatable. Um, mm. And she, and yeah, and she writes about the kind of cult of celebrity in a way that's properly analytical. So Rihanna is like the perfect subject for Jo.
2: Yeah. She also did a great one recently with Victoria Beckham.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: That was all about Victoria Beckham convincing her that she really is a normal person, she promises. <laughs> So I'm really curious to hear how she perceived Rihanna.
1: Joe, welcome back on the podcast. Hi. So you wrote a piece in FT Weekend in which you interview Rihanna. You were in Paris to meet her. Why was she there? So
4: I was there to see the launch of Fenty, which is her luxury fashion label. And a very select number of us were given an opportunity to have a look at it with her in person. So... We got the first look, and actually I was the second person in the world to buy a piece of Fenty. So that's pretty special. Just FYI, yeah.
1: (laughs) Can you describe the experience of, I mean, you didn't have long to prepare for this, did you? The biggest
4: sort of factor around this has been secrecy. So the project was actually, the deal was signed two years ago with RVMH. They worked on a project for two years, completely in secret, so much so that her strategy team even kept each other in the dark. So, only three of the strategy team actually knew they were working with the Rihanna on a label. And then it was announced last week. So, it's all been done very cloak and dagger. So, all the kind of messages and kind of email correspondence leading up to it were were very opaque and not very clear about exactly what would happen. But there was, you know, the basic insinuation was you'll get sort of FaceTime with Riri, which is um, obviously very thrilling because she's a huge global superstar. Um, so I was told to be at a venue at a certain time, which was a very strange little street down the Marais, which is where they're trying to do something different with a pop up. So it wasn't your usual go into a glossy kind of headquarters mm-hmm. or a huge marbly boutique. It was a very, very innocuous, hoarded store halfway down a kind of very, very boring pedestrian avenue. And kind of then just sat around for about four hours waiting for Rihanna to turn up, <laughs> um, looking, looking at the clothes a lot. Um, and finding out a lot about the fabrication and the detail, while her management team sort of hovered around waiting for her to appear. So then she um, kind of knew that something was happening because like a huge number of like heavies come in wearing suits and looking kind of officious. So you know her bodyguards have arrived, and then she emerged. This kind of sort of little pocket rocket, really. She's like, (laughs) you know, tiny in stature, quite sort of curvy in life, as she likes to point out. And immediately she's sort of on and you forget about the sort of slight anxiety and tension and irritation of having sat around in an airless room for four hours. And you sort of like just enter Rihanna orbit. And what was she like? She's very commanding, she's very soft-voiced, she's very intense. She stares you really, really deep in the eye when she's answering your questions But you also just get the sense from her, which I find quite unusual, actually, in a female celebrity, of her absolutely being in control of the situation. Like, there's no question that she thinks the power resides with her. And it's quite a masculine power, Mm. which I think, you know, a lot of female stars, in my experience, when I've met them, are quite sort of deferential towards you. And I was so kind, so nice of you to be like, you don't get any of that with Rihanna, you just get you're pretty lucky to be in my to be in my <laughs> presence, but in a nice way. But she's like, yeah, mm. I'm awesome,
1: mm. <laughs> which is quite good. And what did you make of the clothes themselves?
4: Well, the clothes were part of... So she's got this whole thing going on, so she wants to do the clothes as drops. So I guess in an analogy to kind of refer to her musical career, it's a bit like singles on an album. So... The brand is Fenty, the album is Fenty, and then the drops are going to be the kind of singles therein. So the idea is that what you see now is not necessarily what you're going to see in like two months or three months or whenever the next drop is, which is all under wraps and they won't tell you anything about it. I mean, I think what's really interesting about this collection particularly is that she's designed it very much for herself. She describes herself as her own muse, but also she's a bit bigger than she might have been like a year ago. And I think because she's feeling bigger, it's quite size inclusive. Mm. And she's sort of designed it around a bigger shape. And that, I think, is really genuinely quite exciting for fashion because although loads of female designers exist, I do think that the kind of archetypes of, of fashion are always quite skinny. Yeah, yeah. And this
1: just didn't really strike me as being so. And how has the fashion world responded to this? Is there a sense of a kind of like celebrity, outsider, usurper? Like, is there a sense of people feeling kind of threatened or worried about this? I think
4: there's a little bit of con not is it concern. I think in the last sort of five, ten years we've seen, Fashion gradually moving away from the idea of the kind of the couturier, the drape and fold designer who stands pinning things to a mannequin, and towards something which is more influencer driven. So, you've seen people who are kind of social media bloggers becoming designers, and increasingly people like Victoria Beckham and the Olsen twins who founded The Row. So we've seen these kind of emerging brands. We've also always seen kind of celebrity brands. I mean, like Britney Spears put her name to perfume or whatever. But I think Rihanna is definitely the first person to have really, I mean, LVMH, if you look at it as the sort of jewel in the luxury crown, to be affiliated with something at that kind of level does kind of reset
1: everybody a little bit. You also quote um, the chairman and chief executive, I think, of LVMH, Saying Rihanna is not couture, but she has the talent. Yeah. So what? What? I mean, that quote seems quite telling. What? What's he saying there?
4: LVMH is founded on this, that you know, the couturier who is doing this bespoke and and craft, skilled artisanal work. I mean, it's like the kind of purest form of dressmaking, and they really have genuine, you know, they genuinely can rip up a bit of like material and create a ball gown with it mm-hmm. with their bare hands. And we're now entering a period of time where designers are less and less actually capable of doing that. I mean, even fashion design who've trained at art college and they're more kind of curators or collaborators or people who put people around. So I think what he was implying by that, wasn't it wasn't offensive, but it was like, you know, it was an acknowledgement of the fact that she doesn't have the skills. I mean, she doesn't. She needs the sort of savoir faire of the people that she's working with, but she's got a very, very good sense of like what you need to do to market something. Mm. I mean, bearing in mind, they've put 30 million into this. She is putting her time in. So they are buying her endorsement of something, which is, you I mean, and they say she has put in the time, but it's an interesting arrangement mm. financially.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're buying her sort of force of personality as well, aren't they? Her yeah and it's leverage
4: i mean she already she has a beauty brand fenty beauty that they also own and in its first year it made over 500 million dollars which is astronomical amounts of money so she does sell but whether she just sells eyeliners to kids or whether she can sell thousand pound blazers remains to me seen so i suppose also within that you kind of got to look at that collection and be like well what are they really planning on flogging here? Mm. And my guess is it's probably the sunglasses and the jewellery rather than the kind of
1: tailoring. But we'll wait and see. Well, Joe, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. So that's it for this week. We'll both be back in two weeks' time. Thank you to everyone who's got in touch recently. We love hearing from you and we do answer every message, so please do send us one. You can email the show at ft.com, or you can find us both on Twitter and Instagram.
2: If you like what you hear, please do leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the main ways that new listeners discover the show.
1: Everything Else is produced
2: by David Waters. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. And our music is composed by Fatim. Okay. Do you want me to do it one more time? We can just talk and see how it goes. Cool.